Hi, Gov Actually listeners. This is Dan Tangerlini, and I want to start this podcast with a quick introduction that's really an apology, an apology for taking so long between Gov Actually podcasts. But there's a, there's a really good reason. Danny Werfel, the, the founding co-host of this podcast, the guy who came up with the great name, was nominated by President Biden last year to serve as the IRS commissioner. He had to go through the entire confirmation process. Apparently, he took his own advice from an earlier Gov Actually podcast on how to prepare for a hearing and how to how to handle a hearing, because today, on March 9th, 2023, he was confirmed to be the commissioner of the IRS once again, going back to finish the work he started in the Obama administration. And I, I think we're all really pleased and proud that he is willing to, to engage in public service again. This podcast I recorded at the end of last year, and it features Governor Charlie Baker, then Governor Charlie Baker, and his chief of staff, Steve Kadish. And governor was, uh, was the governor of Massachusetts uh, at the time and had written a book with Steve that, that's now out, and, and he considers it kind of a user's manual for people in public service and ways to really focus on motivating teams, focusing on customer response and getting the most out of agencies in terms of efficiency and effectiveness. There's some great stories about emergencies they dealt with. And I had the pleasure and honor to be joined in interviewing the governor and the chief of staff, the chief, um, by Jen Polka, the founder of Code for America. And I think what you'll hear in this interview is Jen's brilliant experience around applying technology to, to, to great government outcomes and efficiency comes through. The governor's passion for the state of Massachusetts and public service comes through. Steve Kadish's brilliance and thoughtfulness comes through. And, and I sound like what's happening to me. I'm being chased around my office by the cleaning crew and going into increasingly echoey rooms. So I also need to apologize for the audio quality. Hopefully you can listen through it. You can hear the brilliance of the co-host. And you can get excited about Gov Actually again as we bring together additional new co-hosts and guests in this year. I'd also ask that you wish Danny Werfel best of luck in this great and exciting assignment of his. I know we're all pulling and rooting for him as he works with the tremendous people over at the IRS to make that service as fair and efficient as it possibly can be. Thanks for your, for your patience and thanks for your continued interest in this podcast. Okay, we're back uh, with a new episode of Gov Actually, and um, you'll notice that the next person I'm going to talk to is not Danny Werfel, um, and I'm not breaking any news here for Gov Actually listeners. Danny was just recently nominated to be the IRS commissioner by the uh, by President Biden, or I think it's a nonpartisan statement to say I hope he gets confirmed because I think he would be an incredible IRS commissioner. But um, we're really good. We're very fortunate to have today a replacement co-host um, or a, a, a fill-in co-host, perhaps is the right word. Jen can decide whether she's a replacement. We'll have <laughs> long, complicated uh, uh, contract negotiations later. But uh, we're joined tonight by uh, Jen Polka. Uh, and Jen's got an incredible history. My, my history goes back to her when she was with the Office of Science Technology Policy in the, Biden administ- in the Obama administration, where she was the deputy. Um, but she is the founder of Code for America, a group um, that, is, that, that uh, Gov actually is an absolute huge fan of. We had 
your um, successor on the show. That's a great episode. Um, so it's great to actually have a chance to have Jen Palka on the show, although I won't be interviewing her today. She'll be helping me interview two incredible guests, Governor Charlie Baker and Steve Kadish. Um, Jen, do you want to say hi real quick? Do you want to, is there any part of your biography I got wrong there that you want to clean up? No, I'm just trying to decide if I should channel Danny or be myself, but uh, it's really hard to, really hard to step into Danny's shoes. So I'll just try to be myself. Thanks for having me. Always be yourself. I think that's, I think that's advice in uh, uh, the governor's book. Um, Governor Charlie Baker is governor of Massachusetts. He has served as CEO of Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare, top performing healthcare insurance provider, and twice as Commonwealth of Massachusetts cabinet secretary, leading the executive office of health and human services and the executive office of administration and finance. So there's twice a cabinet secretary in the Massachusetts government. His co-author on this great book, Results Getting Beyond Politics to Get Important Work Done, is Steve Kadish. He's served as the CFO and COO and in other senior leadership roles in healthcare and higher education, both the public and private sectors, and was Governor Baker's first chief of staff. He is a senior research fellow at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. Governor Baker, uh, Mr. Kadish, welcome to Gov Actually. It's great to see you. Thank you. We're thrilled to be here. So, you. so you wrote this book together. Can you tell? Can you just for the audience? Can you just say how did this? How did this partnership form? How did you? first become governor and, and chief of staff? And, and how did you arrive at the conclusion that within already your incredibly busy lives, you're going to write this book together? So um, Steve and I have known each other for over 30 years. I met him when I joined the Weldon Salucci administration back in the early 1990s as uh, undersecretary and then secretary of health and human services. He was working in state government at the time. We got involved on a couple of projects there. and. Um, when I became Secretary of Administration Finance, I brought him over with me um, to serve there. And then when I left and became the CEO at Harvard Pilgrim, Steve came and ran our project management office. And uh, he's just one of those guys who, over the course of many, many years, um, I've worked with on a wide variety of issues in the public and private sector. And when I was fortunate enough to get elected governor, he was the first phone call I made. Um, and he was gracious enough to agree to come into the administration as chief of staff. And the thing you need to know about Steve is um, usually governors, when they pick a chief of staff, they pick somebody who worked on their campaign, their campaign manager, somebody like that. Um, I'm a Republican. Steve's a Democrat. He actually voted in the Democratic primary. I think he voted for me in the general election. Um, but the message I was trying to send um, both inside and outside state government by putting a real operator like Steve into that role was that I wanted our office to be about the work and not about the spin and not about politics. And um, and, and in some ways, a lot of people who knew Steve um, knew exactly what I was trying to say when I made that decision. In, in your, in your book, governor, you, you, um, governor and Steve, um, how do I do that? Is it governor? I, I feel like I'm giving you a title. I have to give him one too. Um, what you said is just completely on the money. So governor is works. Oh, chief, if you like. A lot of people call yeah. chief. Uh, 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 not, not, not to get answers to the questions, though. So governor and Steve is best. So. Okay. All right. Uh, I'll try to get used to it. But um, 
it, it feels like this is both a, um, a, a pragmatic memoir of specific, uh, specific actions or activities or moments of history that took place in your administration, as well as it, it, almost a operational cookbook, if you will, some real strategies and approaches and ideas about how you problem solve. Is that is that a fair description or is there is there some part of what you're trying to accomplish I missed with that? I guess I would say, and then I'll let Steve hop in. I think it's more the latter than the former. We were mm -hmm. trying, we've worked together for a long time and we have a certain way of doing things that's been pretty successful. And I thought we were writing a paper when Steve first proposed this. And by the time we got done with the case studies and everything else, it took five years. That paper became a book. But from my point of view, I do think of it as a as a as a tool as for practitioners and educators more than I think of it as a memoir. There's real hunger for um, how to do things in state government in public sector. The uh, um, even now, I keep getting um, books on um, organizational management, leadership, etc. And they're all business books. There are very few books that are actually written by public sector people for public sector people to help improve public sector services. So this, uh, you know, there, if there's a strong theme in this book, it's about how. The other theme that we hope that you pick up is, is hope. And uh, after January 6th, um, we literally thought about putting our pencils down and um, because of what of what occurred was just so uh, dramatic, dramatic, and still continues to be so. But we thought that the idea of government that can work, and to help folks that want to do that with a how, uh, provide some hope. It, it really is a uh, uh, you know our words uh, uh, a, a successful public sector services can serve as a, a bulwark for hope. For our, uh, for our democracy. So we think about the book as not a memoir at all, although there are good stories here. They're, they're not personal stories. It's really a book about hope and a book about how. Steve or Chief, uh, you know, I think that part of the hope really was just the ways that um, the two of you describe, you know, your cross-partisan partnership and that it wasn't just you, that there were other members of your cabinet that came in, your your, your cabinet governor who came in um, from the other side of the aisle and the beauty with which you worked. You know, it's 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 really obvious from the book, the um commitment to the results that you all had. Um, but you also mentioned, you know, one of your one of your cabinet members saying, if I come work for you, you know, my friends are never going to talk to me again. Steve, you didn't you didn't talk about that at all. Did you have that experience? You know, I, uh, as, as Governor Baker said, um, we had been working on and off with one another for over 30, over 30 years now. And um, it's not that we would finish our sentences, actually not that. It's just that we both came at uh, issues with trying to figure out what the problem was and really focused on the problem to solve over and over and over again. And I had this experience with Governor Baker. In, I, I was originally appointed by Governor Michael Dukakis. Um, a couple of years later, um, uh, Governor Weld wins. He, he brings in Charlie Baker as the Undersecretary of Health and Human Services. We were both 
young punks, um, but we had a um, common commitment to really trying to make government work better. Um, and again, I found that working with, uh, with, with the governor at Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare. And then the opportunity for us to have been in government once to come back with some really strong public sector, private sector experience in terms of what worked there and the combination of what we had done successfully in the public sector combined with what successes and lessons we learned in the private sector um, it was a it was a chance to move very very quickly january eight years ago uh, with uh, you know, to, to to really focus on the results of pub, public sector not the politics and i'll just say over and over again uh, to to his credit and also to Lieutenant Governor Polito's credit, um, they continually looked at knowledge and know-how and not like, uh, you know, whether you had an R, D, or an I after, after your name, so. Well, that, that's, actually, that's actually a really interesting um, part of the how structure that you lay out in the book. So getting to the kind of the DIY part of the book, you talk about the results framework, and it has four parts. The first part being people or policy. Hire the leaders, build a team. The second, follow the facts, uncover points of pain, gather evidence, uh, focus on how, what to do, how to do it, and push for results. Number four, measure, evaluate, adjust, repeat. And you describe it as this kind of um, kind of cycle, this perpetual cycle about you know re reinforcing the people. Uh, following the facts, focusing on how, and then test and evaluate. How, how long did it take you to come to this framework? And were there other were there other parts that kind of fell off, or there other, are, are you know, which, which and, and maybe even Governor, you want to talk about which one you think is the most important of the four parts? And if I can add, were you aware that you were sort of talking about a very common uh, software development technique? Mm. You really see government and software coming together. So I, I, was, I was struck by that. But please go ahead. Well, I, I guess what I would say is I think we were doing this for the most part without really knowing what to call it. Um, it's mm. when we started putting together the, the book that it, it actually started to have a name. But um but I think the, from my point of view, I think the people or policy part is probably the most important, but that's, um, but that's just me. And the reason I say that is um, the, at the end of the day, you know, if you have the right people in these roles, um, some of this, they will figure out, they will figure out with each other. They will figure out with you. They will figure out with their subordinates. Um and they will, you know, stay in the game and make the adjustments based on the data as it becomes available. And, uh, and they'll have the discipline and the perseverance to see it through. One of the things that really matters, especially in the public sector, um, is this ability uh, to stay in the game because it's a distributed decision-making model. You don't get necessarily the same operating model that you would like to have. A lot of times you don't get the money you want. And sometimes you don't even get the people you want um, when you get sort of farther down into the, into the agencies. Um, but you can build a plan on all of these basic frameworks and make adjustments as you go if you have what I would describe as the aptitude and the attitude to see it through. And, uh, and the other thing I'll just say is 
almost all of these folks that came in had management experience, subject matter experience, and most importantly, understood they would have to work across disciplines and across agencies. Um, the the biggest challenge sometimes in government is getting isolated and starting to believe that your agency operates on its own top. And that's just not true. I mean, almost all of us in state government operate this way as much as we operate this way, meaning horizontally as well as vertically. And um, and, and I think one of the things we've done pretty well as an administration, and the media talks a lot about the fact that people stay, uh, leadership is that people stay in leadership positions in this administration, um, is they, is they understand the benefit of collaboration between and among their peers, and they take advantage of those opportunities to benefit. And, um, and if you don't have the right people in those roles, um, you're not going to get kind of the secret sauce that's necessary to truly see these things, see them and then see them through. Absolutely. You know, within that, um, I think one of the things that you mentioned over and over, not just in the section on people's policy, which is, you know, I, I agree with you, so critical, um, is that you have you find people below your leadership level that are focusing on following process instead of focusing on delivering services. And I think for many public servants, it comes back to how do you inspire them to follow, you know, to, to focus on service delivery as a result and getting it done instead of saying, this is how it's done. I got to follow the process and therefore I'm sort of unimpeachable. What is your advice? Um, obviously, a lot of it comes out in the book, but for the listeners, what are the key things to do to get people to focus on the results instead of the process when process is so dominant in government? I think part of it has to do with the points of pain that um, Dan mentioned previously and we talk about in the book. Um, you know, at the end of the day, you have a lot of constituents who rely on your performance um, for uh, for their own sake. And, um, and, and many of the biggest insights we've gotten uh, over the years that we've worked together have come from the constituent experience as opposed to whatever the metrics or the processes that were in place. And the best example of this in the book is probably the Health Connector, um, which was an utter disaster when we got there and really became, you know, probably the the most effective and most well-operated health connector of its kind in all 50 states. And, uh, and a big piece of the learning on that was the constituent experience. And, and I'll tell you something, um, whether it's the registry of motor vehicles, the health connector, the department of children and families, I don't care, take your pick. Um, state employees, like employees everywhere else are much happier if their constituents are happy. And, um, and, and, you know, we did a ton of work to rearrange and reorganize the way the registry manages um, almost all of its um, customer facing relationships. And, you know, that's three million transactions a year. Right. Um, and even post COVID, it's still two and a half million visits to the to the offices. And can you imagine working in one of those places when uh, we took office? It was like an mm -hmm. hour most of the time for somebody just to get in a line and then another hour to get in. Um, and at this point in time, there's no experience like that anywhere in the registry and the customers are happy and the employees get to be happy too, because the people coming up to deal with them and whatever their particular issues are, don't show up just absolutely with steam coming out of their ears. And, 
Um, and 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 most people, we I think we all know this. Most people want to work for an organization that is quote unquote succeeding. And I think that's in some ways the the biggest ticket you can make available to people when you talk to them about the result, which is, yeah, I know, I know you got a process, but the process is leading to a whole bunch of people um, every single day who um, who are are not getting what they need from you. And that is wearing on you. Wouldn't you rather have a process um, where people do get what they need? They feel good about what happened and you can feel good about what you delivered for them. And um, and, and I think that's, you know. I mean, people don't get into public service for everybody to get mad at them because they're not delivering. They um, want respect and they want to they want to treat people with respect and be treated with respect. Exactly. <laughs> and it works both ways. Right. Well, you, you actually you actually say that like four qualities create a foundation for achieving results, trust, humility, respect and compromise. Um, I, I also thought it was interesting as you talked about organizational leadership. So motivating people at the field level. You talked about organization leadership and and how that can you know how important that is to have the right leaders. And there was a, an interesting statement that um, that people are fired by their bosses long after their peers fired them, which is uh, true. Uh, which I I have to say I've seen that that movie played out so many times. Um, and these fundamental principles essentially of human decency are actually the way you move large organizations to do extraordinary things. Um, so, go ahead. I, I come from, I came into government from sort of the technology and software world. And one of the things I loved about your book was all the parallels to how good software is built, which is how good, often how good services are delivered. Not that it's the only thing, but it's a, can be a core part of service delivery. And what Dan's talking about there essentially is, you know, having the bottom up to meet the top down. Uh, if if it's the team below that has already fired the leader, they know something. Exactly. They knew something before. And I, you know, it, another part came from what you were just saying, Governor. Um, you, uh, you and and Chief Steve <laughs> talk in the book about uh, you know your your fact finding piece is both the evidence and then the pain points. Uh, the evidence being sort of the hard facts, and the pain points being, as you were saying this constituent experience, like what is the actual thing that people at the DMV or uh, someone in the child welfare system to speak to some of the really um, challenging and painful stories in the book, um, what is their actual experience? And in, in, in my world, they call that, or rather the software world, they call that the, the quantitative research and the qualitative research. And it's you really cannot have one without the other, that you need the numbers to see it at a high level and an aggregate. But if you can't also then put a human face on it and say, but what all that means is this human being is having this pain point, then you don't always know what those aggregate numbers mean. Hey, Steve, why don't you talk about DCF? Because that's probably the best example around um, around averages and data and pain points all coming together in the same place. Yeah, I, I, I will. But before that, what I what I want to pick up on are some, <laughs> of, the, um, some of the themes. The um, people are policy is where we always start. People are policy. I absolutely agree with the governor. If you don't have that in place, it's not going to work. However, I feel like the thing that we brought and bring and taught in a way, both directly and, and indirectly, 
is a method. Mm-hmm. And so you could have good people, money, commitment, but uh, if there's not a method and an approach to get from the problem you're trying to solve to the result, um, and it's, uh, then, then that's critical. And so if, uh, if uh, the, the people are the folks that are going to actually be creating, doing, uh, carrying through everything, what we tried to capture in this book is what we had been doing for several decades is a methodical approach first to find the problem. You know, as you just said, Jennifer, quantitative and qualitatively, we would say data evidence at points of paying, define the problem you're trying to solve, get the right uh, folks there, but have a method to do it. And it's the method piece that is this big ad add add added value in the public sector it's so often it's you get the budget budget announcement the laws passed the you know press uh, uh, follows that but not the carry through all the way through okay steve i'm gonna stop you there for uh just a minute we're gonna take a quick break and when we come back we're gonna talk about some of the case studies that you and the governor discuss in the book All right, we're back. I'm with guest host uh, Jen Palka, who is, you know, who knows, filling in, replacing, we can talk, uh, Danny Werfel. But we're here with uh, Governor Charlie Baker and uh, Chief Steve Kadish, uh, and we're talking about their great book, Results, Getting Beyond Politics to Get Important Work Done. And Steve set us up as we went into the break to talk about one of the one of the case studies, at least one of the case studies that I mentioned in the book, and it's about the Department of Children and Families. And Steve, do you want to, you know, where were you taking us when you, when you tease the, the conversation and, and before the break? Sure. So the, the DCF, the Department of Children and Families, uh, there's, there is one of these departments in every single state, uh, unfortunately, or fortunately, because these folks are, are helping to take care of some of the most um, troubled and troubling situations for our most vulnerable children and, and their families. Um, when uh, Governor Baker took office in uh, January of 2015, we, uh, he selected a terrific person who was a former social worker as the Secretary of Health and Human Services as the overall lead. And then we were fortunate enough to recruit a terrific woman, uh, Linda Spears, as the commissioner of the department. So you have two great people. Uh, uh, one reason that Commissioner Spears was hired because she was the main author of a report that looked at some of the most devastating cases that had happened in the state. And so therefore there was a work plan to proceed. But so here was an example of people are policy. We had that box check two terrific people they were attracting some strong people to work with them they had a game plan so to speak following the recommendations of the report but during that summer there were three really terrible incidents that occurred on our watch and um uh after the third incident occurred i i remember in one of our early morning uh, phone calls, the governor said, um, 
we've got to we've got to go in and help uh, Linda, the commissioner, and uh, Mary Lou Sutters, the secretary. And so at that time, we had already effectively rolled out the results framework at the uh, Health Connector, which is another example in the book, uh, made, had made some great progress at the Registry of Motor Vehicles. And this was an example of where we wanted to bring um, a, a different kind of approach to working with social workers in the social work agency. And with that, I'm going to flip it to uh, Governor Baker. Thanks, Steve. Um, the, the thing people should know here is that the way DCF works in Massachusetts is if you change a policy or create a policy, you have to negotiate it with the union, which is fine, except that it takes a really long time. And in a couple of the cases that Steve's talking about, um, when we did the follow-up on what went wrong, one of the things that went wrong was you either didn't have a policy in place, literally didn't have a policy for, for line workers or managers to make decisions about certain kinds of cases, or the policy literally hadn't been updated for 20 years. And, you know, a lot had happened. So we wanted to go fast on this. And we actually used a process called Agile Scrum, which is a pretty traditional process to use in, in developing um, programming software and got all the right people around the table, set deadlines and treated it the same way you would treat a release associated with um, an agile scrum, which is, okay, we need to do something about investigations. Let's build the policy and implement it. We need to do something about the way we handle um, foster families in certain kinds of uh, circumstances around what we know and don't know about the foster families. Let's go ahead and put that program in place and change that policy. And you know, policies that used to take years to get written were literally getting written in months. And um, and that dramatically improved the agency's ability to actually perform. And because it was done using this process, the union felt like they had a voice. Management felt like they had a voice. The people on the team felt like they had a voice. And they just got one after another after another done. And, you know, over the course of a couple of years, they did the amount of work that would have taken a decade before to update and rewrite or write for the first time policies um, to, to focus on how they actually operate and deal with kids and families. The other thing we did was we had an average caseload of 18, which was considered to be appropriate. But we looked behind the average and took a look at what their 25 area offices. Well, what's the average caseload in each, each office? And then within each office, what's the average, what's actually the top and bottom number for a lot of the social workers? And we found that there were a lot of social workers with nine and 10 cases and a whole bunch of others with 25 and 26. So we said, well, what we really need to do here is focus on the folks who have 25 and 26, because that's just a problem waiting to happen and work to help get those caseloads down um, to the point where they were at a manageable level. And that brought the overall average down, um, but it represented this big moment, this big aha moment for us, which was averages are just a number. They're not necessarily representative of where the organization is overall. And I'm telling you, one of the single most important things we did, in addition to giving people this power to believe that they could update their policies and their regulatory um, structure much more quickly and much more collaboratively through this structured methodology was we got all, we got the tail. We took care of this giant tail. We had social workers who had way more cases they, than they should have had but if you'd actually just looked at the average number, it's, eh, it's 18, that's about right. 
you would have left a whole bunch of stuff you really needed to work on um, unprocessed and undealt with and made things, frankly, dramatically worse for the families and the kids that are being served, as well as by the social workers. We also managed pretty quickly. We, we had about 40 percent, I think, 48 percent of our social workers who were licensed uh, when we took office. Um, we had them all licensed within a year and a half. And anybody who didn't get licensed, we gave an opportunity to work in what we call the social work tech position, which basically provided a lot of the arms and legs around the administrative work to support the social workers so they could focus on social work. And the other thing we did for years, the state had talked about creating a clinical arm to support social workers dealing with difficult cases, and it just never happened. And it was another one of those things that we actually using this agile scrum process, got it in place. And it's made a huge difference in terms of the social workers ability to get the advice and guidance they need from very smart and talented people um, who know what they're doing around uh, many of these clinical issues that more complicated families have. Um, and it never, th that kind of support never existed before. Now you don't talk much about it in the book. I mean, it's just hugely impressive and such an important project. I think none of, none of us can fail to relate to the importance of what you've done there uh, to the families of Massachusetts. Um, you don't talk much about whether there was resistance to the Agile Scrum methodology. Did people just say, great, that makes sense, let's do it? Right. Um, I, I, what I think I would say is people were, um, were willing to try. And, um, and when they started to see how quickly they could actually put policy in place um, that they supported and believed in, and they had a voice. I mean, remember, everybody, um, for the most part, who, um, who, was, who would have to be vested in this was around that table. I mean, Steve, you were in a lot of those meetings. I'm sure a bunch of them started with the arms crossed. But my recollection here is, is people got pretty happy with this thing pretty fast. Well, let me call out something else you talk about a lot in the book, both in sort of your process and then, you know, applied, I think, in every one of your case studies is this is this you talked about the table where uh, you literally have people around the table where every voice is going to be heard. And where, from what I understand, you know, hierarchy doesn't matter. So you're really hearing people from the bottom of the organization to the top and encouraging that. So uh, that just seems very powerful. I look, I am um, Steve. Uh, hierarchy. I hierarchy is so overrated. It really is. I mean, I, I, um, as I, as we say in the book, right, you know, you get fired by your peers and your subordinates long before you get fired by your boss. Um, I, I, uh, I violate the hierarchy rule all the time. I call all kinds of people that I meet in my travels in and around state government to talk to them about stuff. And, um, and eventually people realize that this isn't a hunt to punish anybody. It's just a desire to make sure that information gets to where it needs to go. And, um, and, and I do think, I, I hope that's one of the things we tried to do with the culture we've created around here, which is because we have this framework and we buy into it and we believe it and people believe we believe it's about results and not about hanging anybody out to dry. Um, that for the most part, um, it's okay if, if data moves and information moves this way and this way um, pretty quickly. And I'll tell you something where it became really important was during the pandemic. Um, the ability for data and information to move fast, um, given how complicated that whole thing was, um, I think was, I think we benefited from the fact that people were used to the idea that information 
wasn't to be sort of held and treasured and used as a tool or a weapon, but was in fact something to be shared. So uh, you 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 have this anti-hierarchical kind of uh, uh, comment here, but also in the book you say, "Hail to the COO." What what were you getting across when you when you talked about that role and and the importance of of operations and getting this work done? Well, that was kind of my throwaway for Steve because I know it was important to him. Um, <laughs> I think. I, I'll let him speak to this one, but I think the the point there was to just say that um, that job done well um, really does become, for all intents and purposes, a uh, a distributor and manager of information and and actions and responses um, in anticipation. And the really good ones, and we have a lot of really good COOs around here. Um, can really make a difference in an organization's ability to move information and make decisions based on best data. And for the public, for the private sector, you would always have a COO for an organization of any size because of what is required to pull together money, people, space, processes, et cetera. In the public sector, um, it's, a, it's, it's a lot more common now in the Baker administration, but it, it, it wasn't uh, respected or honored in the same way that the legislative lead was or the communications lead was or the, the budget lead was. And yet, if you're focused on results, you really need that role. So uh, there are a heck of a lot more people who either in title or in actuality have the chief operating officer title and I, I, I know from a little bit of experience that I've had in other states, this is that there still is not enough attention to the how and the operating piece um, that, than there is to the, you know, the, the uh, budget money uh, policy pieces. And you need both. And so the hail to the COO was really a, uh, you know, a, a big exclamation point saying, this is really important. And if you do not have an individual whose uh, title and whose responsibilities include this, it, it, you might get there, but the odds of getting there are really much, much lower. You're, you're, kind, of, you're kind of playing to the GovActually crowd with that statement, by the way. But um, so you talk about the Department of uh, Families and Children, Children and Families, you talk about healthcare. There's a lot in the book about COVID-19 response. Um, you also talk about, and and uh, actually listeners know, I was the former uh, interim general manager here of uh, Metro. So you, you talk about, um, you talk about the T, the governor's like, oh no, where's this going? Uh, but um, uh, you- No, I was just smiling. I'd love to hear about your experience there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a, that, that, that conversation requires a beer, I'm afraid. But um uh, facing financial troubles is one of the it's one of the callouts in the book, and one of the ones I thought um, really had again another very very thoughtful framework for practitioners to consider. You say budget problems hurt the entire organization. The greater the problem, the greater the changes needed, and the greater the pushback from defenders of the status quo. As always, though, in crisis there is also opportunity. Do you want to talk a little bit about how that crisis created an opportunity for you to? Uh, explore some of these different approaches to dealing with budget and financial crisis? I think the, um, 
I think the most interesting one associated with the tea actually happened early in the administration, which was, um, you know, 20 days after we took office, it snowed for 30 days in a row and pretty much shut down everything, including the public transportation system. And um, and and it led eventually to the resignation of the woman who was the GM at the time and um, and a real soul searching about. Uh, the way it was organized and how it operated. And and in the end, we got some really important reforms out of that. And I'll give you a simple example of one that, Dan, if you ran Metro, you'll really appreciate. Um, we were not allowed, um, we were not allowed before all the snowstorm and the reforms that took place afterwards to use independent private bus contractors to move passengers anywhere along the system when we were planning to do work on the rail system. So I want you to think about that for a minute. That meant um, for all intents and purposes that um, if we could only do work on the, on, the, on the light rail system, if we had other drivers and other buses that were part of the bus operation available, which meant we didn't do a lot of work on the system, which is part of why it ended up in such an incredibly terrible state of disrepair. So one of the things we got as, a, as an agreement coming out of the storms from the, from the union was the ability to use private contracted buses uh, to move passengers around while we were doing work on the rapid transit system. And I'm telling you, we've done billions and billions of dollars of modernization work at night, on weekends, on temporary shutdowns, and all of it has been done using, for the most part, private contractors uh, to move passengers. And the vast majority of it has gone pretty well. Um, and at the same time we did that, we invested in our buses, we upgraded our fleet, we completely reconfigured the way we actually ran the um, ran the routes to more accurately match where people were and where we needed to be um, to move people around. And, you know, that one change changed everything about our ability to actually do work at night on weekends and um, and to shut certain lines down and be able to offer a fully delivered uh, alternative service. And, uh, you know, the best example of this I can give you is when COVID started, which, you know, um, nobody was driving at that point, right? And we had all this work we needed to do on the north side of Boston Harbor, okay, and on the south side. But we couldn't ever get enough time to do the work. So one of the things we did um, early in the pandemic when there wasn't a lot of cars on the road is we literally set up a construction site at the location underground on the north side of the harbor and just went that way up the tracks north and that way down the tracks under the harbor um, and over to the other side and ran buses every 45 seconds through the Sumner Tunnel on one side and through the Callahan on the other to get people from Maverick, which was on the north side, to Haymarket, which was on the south side, and did literally what would have taken us five to eight years in about eight weeks. And I just think the, the thing people don't understand about this sometimes is you get the right kind of small change um, in place that has really big significant consequences, it opens up this huge opportunity to improve and modernize an operation. And that was exactly what happened there with that one. 
Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. It was cool. I mean, it, and it, it still to this day has made an enormous difference for us in so yeah. many ways. You know, you talk a lot in the book about um, uh, things that are thrust upon you. Uh, you say in the beginning, in the private sector, your agenda can be selective. You're you're choosing particular priorities. In the public sector, you don't really get to choose. You kind of have it all. I wondered sort of uh, your and thoughts. <laughs> Pardon? And then some. And then some, yeah. So if you look at, you know, the um, health connector and COVID and the crisis at DCF and the snow, this is all stuff that sort of gets thrown at you and you're dealing with. How did you find time for stuff in that not urgent, but very important quadrant? Dave, why don't you speak to that? The strategic operations group had yeah. a lot to do with that. It wasn't just the, um, um, the, the particular change that, that was really important that the governor talked about. It was then the objective measurement as to how how things were going with the improvement that that was uh, being looked for um, during the snowstorms we had leadership review meetings four times a day i i, I know uh, governor more recently the um the MBTA might have had meetings uh at least a couple times a day but you had them regularly reviewing exact status of what was going on and um this wasn't the top this wasn't a shoot the messenger kind of uh situation it wasn't mm -hmm. it was the opportunity to create a situation to create a uh a place of discussion where people could say this is going well this isn't and we need some help here and so this again, this idea of a an approach, a method, uh, was critically important to actually uh, getting things done. Um, in in terms of um, focusing on the, we 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 had to focus on the most important issues, but by definition, um, and then. The issues that were the other issues that we would focus on with the, uh, the the measuring stick, so to speak, would be what are those issues that are most important to constituents? And uh, a good example of this is mentioned uh, uh, briefly uh, in, in, in the book, and that's what uh, the, the administration did related to uh, rural Internet. Mm. and. Um, you know, people were getting by with the limited internet connections that they had one way or another. So barely. it wasn't the, it was really it, barely, barely, but still, but it wasn't, it wasn't the, you know, a, a, a child death or it wasn't uh, somebody who couldn't get access to healthcare or it wasn't the complete collapse of the transportation system. But it was an example of something that absolutely needed to be addressed. And so I'm going to put this to the governor to talk about um, what what we did. Uh, again, this was an example of the governor, you know, uh, asking me and a couple of the members of our strategic operations team to go work with the agency and figure out uh, a, you know, the comprehensive plan to move forward. And with that, over to you. 
So this is um, this issue is kind of um, really interesting because it wasn't it never came up when Lieutenant Governor Polito and I were campaigning, but in um, in some time in our first year, I don't remember exactly when it was. She and I both at the same time got in conversations with people in Western Mass about the fact that there were 53 communities out there that did not have access to broadband and had been trying to get access forever. And the state had built what I would describe as sort of the middle mile, but it never figured out how to actually connect all these different houses and businesses in these um, in these hill towns. And, um, and the more we looked into it, we kept getting told that they really didn't want it, right? And what it turned out was they didn't want what the Commonwealth was offering them to close that last mile. So the Lieutenant Governor and I created a, a program and we got a couple of guys from Western Mass who were respected out there to be a big part of it. And we did it through um, our uh, Mass Technology Collaborative. And we basically created a menu of options and gave cities and towns the ability, it was towns, the ability to choose which one they wanted and everybody chose something off the menu. And then we went to work. And the hard part there was you have to stay on all of these players. You got to stay on the utilities, stay on the internet service providers, stay on the contractors who are laying the poles. We put 20,000 poles in, in Western Mass, um, to make these connections work. And, um, and it was, a it was a maniacal, you know, it was like pile driving just to make sure everybody stayed on this. And in the end, we spent about $57 million to pull it off, but we now have internet access in uh, all 53 communities and 46 of them are completely built out. The rest of the, the seven that aren't built out all the way will be built out shortly. And during the pandemic, a lot of these places got lit up, right? Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden they had it at a point in time when they desperately needed it. And I can't even begin to tell you the stories about the differences it's made in their ability to to not only live their lives and do their jobs, but to believe in the community that they're in. The idea of trying to sell a house or sell a business in a community that doesn't have broadband is like trying to do it in a community that doesn't have electricity or running water. I mean, it's just, it ain't, you ain't going to get there. And we had a, an event to sort of celebrate this stuff um, in Ashfield, which is one of the Western Mass uh, communities on this. And I mean, people were crying when they told us their stories and talked about the game changer this has been for them and what it's meant for them and for their communities. And, uh, and I, I just, you know, it was one of those things that you come out of it and, you know, it took us seven years to get it done, but I'll tell you something. Um, it just, I'll never forget that meeting, listening to all these people talk about what it meant to them. Yeah. That's great. I can't imagine making it through the pandemic without internet. It's so right. great that you got ahead of that. <laughs> yeah. Well, governor, um, Chief Steve, thank you so much. Thank you so much for for telling us a little bit about your about your book and about your experience. Um, do either of you have do you have like a final kind of statement you want to share with the audience before we before we wrap up? I would I would just say to the practitioners and and to the students and the researchers and the and the explorers um, who are interested in in public service, um, this book is is written for you and. Um, and I and I really do believe at the end of the day that one way you deal with 
all of the noise and all the misinformation and all the baloney that's out there in the social media and media world about government and what it does and what it doesn't do is by actually delivering for people every single day. If you deliver for people every single day and the things they care about, they will respond. Um, I mean, our administration has a 75% favorability rating after eight years in office and, you know, the pandemic and everything else. And I really do believe a big part of that is due to the fact that most people feel like the stuff we're supposed to be doing for them and with them is better than it was when we got here. And that is what I really wish we could all focus on because that's what people care about. Such a healthier conversation too. Yeah, boy, no kidding. Chief Steve? Nope, that's a great place to end. And I'll I'll, I'll, I'll add this because the... Um, it's this idea that the, the work is never done. And so mm-hmm. um, this relates to the Department of Children and Families after a whole bunch of really good things happened and then another terrible incident in one of our, one of the state's leading advocates um, said, her name is Mary McGowan, if I could change this one thing, I think we should stop refor- referring to it as quote unquote, reforming the department. That suggests there's going to be an end. Our child welfare system needs to be continually enhanced. And we end the um, COVID chapter with a quote um, from Nelson Mandela. Same theme. After climbing a great hill, one only finds there are many more to climb. And so this idea that it's one and done is just not there. And you know, Governor Baker spoke earlier about persistence and stick to itiveness and making change, learning, uh, growing, and really making a difference is uh, is is why is is why we wrote, wrote this book. And it's it is definitely a continuum. It doesn't it doesn't end. That's right. That's going to resonate, I think, with everyone who's ever done public service and certainly all those still doing public service. Thank you for those inspiring remarks and for the all the fantastic content in the book. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Um, and Jen, thank you for filling in for Danny. I really so much fun. All right. Um, we'll be back. Some great. Thanks. Thank, thank you. you very much. Okay, so that was episode 58. And thanks so much for your patience and for listening to Gov Actually. Looking forward to 2023, some new episodes, some great guests, and uh, uh, we'll find out who the co-host is. Thanks, everyone.